In today's episode of 750 Mills, the one thing you already know is bad for you, but you might not realize you're having a lot of, and another thing that you also already know that both athletes and the arthritic can do, but maybe we don't appreciate how good it is because we don't know enough about what exactly it does to us. Oh, you know, I'm being purposefully vague right now, but I promise you, this isn't just clickbait in podcast form. Everything in this episode is going to be really useful to you, wherever you are and whoever you might be, I promise you. Stick around, stay tuned, and enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to 750 Mills, the show that's all about bringing you good news, interesting stories, and all manner of genuinely useful things to know. I'm glad to have you hanging out with me, my name is Andre, and today we're going to talk about a couple of one things, air quotes, in this episode. It's a clickbait strategy, I know, but I'm not just going to leave you hanging. Even I was kind of surprised at what I learned about these two things when I was researching this episode, and I've known about them my entire life, to be honest. The basics of it, anyway. The first thing is something we all already know is bad for us, and it's something that we should avoid. But in my experience, we don't really know the reasons why behind it. I think understanding that part of the equation is important for a lot of things, especially this one thing. It's not a good thing to go through life making decisions without being able to explain why you're doing stuff that way. Then, the one thing that everyone can do, but probably most all of us take for granted, and myself included, until I learned everything I did in this episode. Believe me, you don't want to take this one thing for granted. It's so simple, so easy, yet it can also have a really powerful effect on your life. And this isn't me just being overdramatic about it. You'll understand what I mean when we get to the second half of the podcast. Anyway, let's just get into it. You are what you eat. This is something you hear people say a lot, but when it comes to what that actually means for you in a practical sense, it's a bit more vague. Let's break that down a bit. We all know that junk food is bad for you, right? And eating a lot of that can make you unhealthy and it can make you gain weight. It's simple enough. But what specific things in junk food have what specific effects on your health? Well, today we're going to focus on just one thing from junk food that's bad for you, but in ways that maybe you might not have realized. That ingredient is sugar. Afterward, we'll talk about why you're probably eating more sugar than is good for you, even if you're not eating a lot of junk food. You'll want to stick around for that, trust me. Let's make this quick. According to science, sugar makes you stupid. Earlier this year, a study published in the May 15 issue of the Journal of Physiology showed that eating a high fructose diet over the long term alters your brain's ability to learn and remember information. Fructose is a type of sugar that's commonly found as part of high fructose corn syrup, a type of cheap liquid sweetener that manufacturers add to their processed food products like soft drinks, condiments, applesauce, and even baby food. Ever wonder why babies seem to develop a hankering for that stuff so much? Hits them in her sweet spot, it turns out. The researchers did a controlled study on two groups of rats. Rats having a similar brain chemistry to us humans, therefore leading the researchers to extend the effects on those critters as being applicable to us as well, with both groups being taught to navigate a maze using visual landmarks to help them get through it. Then, both groups of rats were given a fructose solution as water with one group also getting a dose of omega-3 fatty acids, which are thought to protect against damage to the synapses, the chemical connections between brain cells, 
that enable memory and learning. After six weeks on this diet, the researchers tested both groups of rats by putting them through the maze again. According to researcher Fernando Gomez Pinilla, the group of rats that only consumed the fructose solution struggled to remember the route they had already learned, and they couldn't think clearly. Their brains showed a decline in synaptic ability. On the upside, the second group of rats that had been given omega-3 fatty acids solved the maze faster than the first group. So, according to the researchers, this proves that omega-3 fatty acids can protect against the damage long-term high sugar intake can do to your brain's ability to learn and to remember. The rats fed high levels of fructose developed insulin resistance, which the researchers think may be what's hurting the brain cells. Insulin resistance due to the constant flow of fructose may have changed how cells use and store sugar and use it as the energy required for processing thoughts and emotions. If the brain cells can't use insulin correctly, it could impact how they work. Insulin is important in the body for controlling blood sugar, but it may play a different role in the brain, where insulin appears to disturb memory and learning, Gomez Penilia said. Our study shows that a high fructose diet harms the brain as well as the body. The thing about sugar in food is that it can be surprisingly sneaky in where you can find it, especially if you're not looking for it on food labels or even if you just assume that something is healthy just because it grows on trees and in your garden. You'd be very surprised. Fructose is not only found as a component of high fructose corn syrup, the liquid sweetener that manufacturers use. It's a specific type of sugar also found abundantly in nature, in foods that many people assume to be good for your health, such as fruits. That's right, fruits. Now wait a minute, you might say. Fruits are healthy, aren't they? They're full of vitamins and minerals and all sorts of nutrients that are good for your health, right? Yes, yes they are. But they're also full of sugar. So the more fruits you eat, the more sugar you put into your body. And we have already established and proven that consuming a lot of sugar is bad for you in more ways than one. Not just in this episode, but in previous episode of the podcast if you've been tuning in for a while. Let's put it this way. There's a lot of nutritional value to be found in fruit. The vitamins, minerals, micronutrients you can find in fruit are good for you. That's true. But the sugar that you can find in fruit can also be bad for you, especially in large quantities. That's also a true statement. Those two things can be true at the same time. In the United Kingdom, Dr. David Unwin, a family physician and an award-winning doctor, devised a set of infographics that make it very easy for ordinary people like you and me to understand just how much sugar can be found in much of the food we consider to be common staples of our everyday diet, whole food or otherwise. The way he did it was he just showed one whole food ingredient to one side, and then how much sugar you can find in it, which he represented using teaspoonfuls of sugar. It makes it easier to visualize and kind of gives you an immediate gut reaction, because think about it. You wouldn't shove a teaspoonful of sugar into your mouth, let alone several, right? One infographic in particular is interesting to us right now because it tells us how much sugar you can find in the types of fruit you can easily buy in supermarkets today, based on an average serving size of about 120 grams. And I'm imagining this to be about one piece of fruit if it's something like a banana, and maybe about a cup of the smaller berry-type fruit if it's something like that. Anyway, here's what the infographic tells us, from lowest to highest amounts of sugar. A cup of strawberries has about a teaspoonful and a half of sugar. 
An apple has about two teaspoonfuls of sugar and change. A cup of grapes has about four teaspoonfuls of sugar. A banana apparently has close to six teaspoonfuls of sugar. How many bananas do you have every day? Dr. Unwin has a few versions of his sugar infographics for everyday staples like breakfast food and even different types of rice and pasta. Here's a few more interesting highlights about food that's pretty commonly thought of as being healthy, but you might not realize has more sugar than you'd probably want to be eating. Here we go. A small 30 gram serving of oatmeal has 3 teaspoonfuls of sugar and change, and this is before you add any sweetener or sugar to it. I usually see people eat 3 to 4 times more than just a dinky 30 gram serving, easily, and they'd put extra stuff in like sliced bananas and honey. So that's something to think about. A cup of white rice has close to 10 teaspoonfuls of sugar. Brown rice is slightly healthier, air quotes, having only 7 teaspoonfuls of sugar and change. And a slice of white bread has the equivalent of 4 teaspoonfuls of sugar, while brown bread has about 3. What about cereals? They're frequently marketed as being part of a healthy breakfast, so let's take a look at the sugar content of some of the more popular brands of cereal, again using a tiny 30 gram serving size as a baseline, bearing in mind that on average, most people will eat at least twice or thrice as much. So Cocoa Pops, 7 teaspoonfuls of sugar and change. Corn Flakes, 8 teaspoonfuls and change. And Special K, 4 teaspoonfuls. And there's more. I could probably go on all episode just reading off the entire list of foods with hidden sugar, but I'll put a link to Dr. Unwin's infographics in this episode's show notes for you to look at, and I recommend you do, seriously. They're even available in a bunch of different languages like Spanish, Dutch, German, Arabic, and even Filipino, and other languages as well through the UK's Public Health Corporation website. If you're on Twitter, you should also follow Dr. Unwin through his account, at LowCarbGP. He tweets out some stuff you should take an interest in if you care about health in general. So, what's a takeaway, really? Science demonstrates that the more sugar we consume, the dumber we get, in addition to the physical damage we can do to ourselves by deliberately eating stuff loaded with it all the time, whether we realize it or not. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's also the straight truth. If you want to become healthy and physically fit, one of the best ways to start is to understand how much sugar you're really consuming every day and be active in looking to reduce that in a meaningful and significant way. The more you reduce sugar intake, the healthier you will be in the long run. This means taking stuff like high sugar fruit out of your diet or at least drastically reducing how much of them you have in a day. Here's one way to look at it. Think of fruit as being nature's snack food. Nice to have every now and then, but only in small quantities and not as a main ingredient or a staple food in your diet. Here's another interesting thing to think about. You know all that fruit you can buy at the supermarket? The fruits people eat today are not the fruits that nature intended them to be. We can make the argument that without human interference, none of the fruit you can get your hands on right now would exist. We have spent years and decades modifying fruit and other crops to not just yield more and be more resistant to pests and disease, but to be bigger, better looking, and sweeter. We do this not only through the more modern method of genetic modification, but also through the older technique of selective or crossbreeding. 
An article from Science Alert shows us just how some of the more common varieties of fruit we eat have changed so much due to human tinkering. Take the peach, for example. Some have said that peaches, as found in nature, were first domesticated by the ancient Chinese several thousand years ago. What were they like? Natural peaches used to be just 25 millimeters in diameter on average. That's roughly a third of your finger. They were described as tasting earthy, sweet, sour, and slightly salty. Only 64% of the actual peach was edible back then. The remaining 36% of it was its stone core. And what about the modern-day peach? Most peaches you can buy today have about an average diameter of 100 millimeters, four times bigger than what a natural peach would have been had it been left uninterfered with by human cultivation. It's sweet and juicy, and 90% of the fruit itself is now edible. That's a huge difference, isn't it? What about carrots? They didn't always look like the orange stuff you can buy today. The earliest known carrots were grown in the 10th century in Persia and Asia Minor, and these were originally thought to be either purple or white with thin forked roots. I'm looking at a picture of it right now and it just looks like dead wood, the sort of stuff you'd probably trip over in a forest while running away from a serial killer. And then we have the banana, again. Nature apparently didn't intend bananas to be the yellow, elongated, easily graspable, ripe for a moment, mushy the next fruit that we know today. Prior to being crossbred into what looks like the banana we know today, ancient bananas were a lot shorter, a bit more plump, and if you cut one in half, you'll see a cross-section filled with plenty of seeds that look like a pain to take out just to get to what little fruit meat you see in it. It gives me toothaches just by looking at the picture. So yeah. If you want to lose weight, become a bit more physically fit, and reduce inflammation in your body that can not only lead to disease but also make any pre-existing conditions worse, reducing the amount of sugar you consume is an important and effective strategy. Try to understand how much sugar is in the food you eat, both in fruits and vegetables. If you buy something with a nutritional label on it, check the back for how much carbohydrates it has. Carbohydrates break down into sugars in the body, and you'll want to be mindful of how much of these you consume. Dr. David Unwin, who we've mentioned at the outset, has used the low-carbohydrate diet to improve the health of many of the patients who come into his practice, and I've read quite a lot about him. He's also managed to reverse type 2 diabetes in a surprising number of his patients using that same low-carbohydrate diet. And this optimally means trying to consume about 50 grams or less of carbohydrate sugar in one day. To give you an idea of how much that is, a Big Mac from McDonald's has about 46 grams of carbs overall, last I checked. In somewhat related news, a report from Medical News Today highlights a study suggesting that a ketogenic diet may keep the brain healthy and young. Basically, keto is a form of low-carb diet that is high in fat and moderate in protein. The goal is to trigger ketosis, which is a metabolic process through which the body breaks down fat and protein and transforms them into energy, leading to weight loss. So instead of having your body be fueled by carbohydrates, it starts fueling itself with fat. And if you have a lot of fat stored in your body, that to me sounds like a pretty good idea. A lot of people who do keto do it to reduce weight. But in recent years, studies have been surfacing that suggest it can also do a lot more, like reducing the side effects of certain cancer therapies, and like this study we're highlighting, be good for your brain. 
Researchers from the Sanders Brown Center on Aging at the University of Kentucky in Lexington conducted two studies, both in mice. The findings indicate that keto-type diets can protect neurovascular function as well as metabolic function in general, which may help maintain healthy cognitive function. The team worked with two groups of nine mice each, all of which were aged 12 to 14 weeks. The animals received either a ketogenic diet or a regular diet for 16 weeks. After this period, the scientists found that the mice that had followed the keto regimen had not only improved blood flow to the brain, but also better bacterial balance in the gut, as well as slower blood glucose or sugar and lower body weight. Moreover, and most importantly, the keto diet also seemed to boost the clearance of beta-amyloid protein in the brain, the building blocks that, in Alzheimer's, stick together, forming toxic plaques which interfere with neuronal signaling. Neurovascular integrity, including cerebral blood flow and blood-brain barrier function, plays a major role in cognitive ability, notes study author Ai Ling Lin. We were delighted to see that we might indeed be able to use diet to mitigate risk for Alzheimer's disease. The report goes into deeper detail about both studies, so I'll put a link to that in the episode show notes if you want to check it out. Sugar makes you stupid, but apparently a diet high in healthy fat makes your brain young and healthy. And that's according to science. Hey everyone, just taking a quick break to give you a quick update on a story we covered on a previous episode and I have a listener from Spain to thank for highlighting this. Remember Kevin, the world's loneliest elephant? In episode 12 we talked about his story, how he was in pretty bad shape for years and how the world basically came to his rescue. Along the way, singer and actress Sher also got wind of Kevin's situation and brought even more attention to his plight. She got involved, adding more power to the campaign and now Kevin has finally been flown out to his new home in a wildlife sanctuary in Cambodia. So, from miserably chained up and being unable to move in an ill-equipped zoo in Pakistan, to being able to move about and live as an elephant should in Cambodia, Kevin is finally home and free. He's still got a ways to go in terms of recovering physically and psychologically, but that is a great first step. Also, for the first time since 2012, Kevin has made contact with another elephant. So I guess he no longer holds the title of the world's loneliest elephant. Thanks for the heads up on that one. And you can also chime in and interact with the podcast and other listeners if you want by checking out 750 Mills on Facebook and Twitter. So hit that like and follow button to get updates, extra stuff like audiograms, which are going to be getting a bit of a shiny new paint job in the near future. So watch out for that. And hear me make excuses for why an episode is delayed like this one since this is probably the longest episode I'd had to research, write, and produce. Links to the Facebook page and the Twitter feed, as always, are available on the show notes for this episode, which you can find by going to www.750ml.fm. Well, if you like the podcast, hey, tell a friend by sharing an audiogram from Facebook or Twitter, and please consider subscribing to 750 Mills using your favorite podcasting app or platform like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the like. Leave a star rating and a quick review. This is one way you can help me improve the podcast with your feedback, and this also helps more people find it. Anyway, back to the show. We started this episode with two things, a saying and a focal point. The first being, you are what you eat. The second being a focus on what makes us stupid, specifically focusing on our brain and the effect sugar has on it. 
So let's continue with another saying you might have heard before: the body follows the mind. In what way? We think and make decisions using our minds. The smarter you are, the better decisions you can make. Makes sense, right? Let's break that down. Do you think you can be smart if your brain is unhealthy? Just give it a little bit of thought. Here's another thing you can think about: if your body is unhealthy, can your brain be healthy independent from it? Separating your brain from your body is just not a thing you can or should do. You'd be dead if you did. What's good for the body is good for the mind. If you had to pick one single activity that's not only good for both your body and your mind, but could also be something anyone can do regardless of age or level of physical fitness, what would it be? How about walking? Walking just might be one of the most overlooked physical activities that has benefits beyond just burning a few calories while you get from point A to point B. A lot of us probably just don't think too much about the process of walking. That's why I think a lot of people would also be surprised at just how good walking can be for you. So, just what are the health benefits of walking anyway? Let's start from the top. Literally, a study published in the journal Neurology found that walking can help maintain brain health over time and may actually improve cognitive function, including improving executive function for adults at risk of cognitive decline. In simple terms, low to moderate intensity aerobic exercise, which includes going on regular walks of reasonably moderate length, is good for your brain health overall, and it can help people at risk of Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia as well. This article from Bustle.com adds: Participants who engaged in walking three times a week for six months demonstrated improved performance on a standard battery of neurocognitive tests of executive function. The study revealed. Previous research backs this up. According to Harvard Health, physical activity helps reduce things like inflammation, which can have a negative effect on brain health. Here's a comment from Harvard Health blog executive editor. That's a title and a half. Heidi Godman. The benefits of exercise come directly from its ability to reduce insulin resistance, reduce inflammation, and stimulate the release of growth factors. Chemicals in the brain that affect the health of brain cells, the growth of new blood vessels in the brain, and even the abundance and survival of new brain cells. A past study found that aerobic activity can even boost the size of the hippocampus region of the brain, uh, the area responsible for verbal memory and learning. Basically, walking can help make you smarter now, and if you're up there in age, it can help you keep your mind sharp and your wits about you. So far, so good. What other benefits does walking bring? Well, let's say you're somebody who has a fairly high level of physical fitness and you don't skip leg day. Walking can help speed up recovery. Walking is restorative and assists with training recovery. One of the ways it does this is by increasing blood flow throughout your body. Personal trainer Branko Teodorovic says, walking gets more oxygen transported into your legs versus than when you're lying down or sitting. It transports all the nutrients necessary to feed muscles in your legs and to replenish glycogen or muscle energy. Plus, walking breaks up lactic acid buildup so that your muscles are more prepped for your next training session. There's a few more benefits to walking that might pique your interest. It improves glycemic control in people with poor glucose tolerance. Basically, if you're metabolically unhealthy, just 15 minutes of walking after a meal tends to do the trick. The closer your walk is to the time you've had a meal, the more effective it becomes in helping you not only to lose weight, 
but also helping you lower your blood pressure and improve your triglyceride levels. If 15 minutes is good, imagine how much better 30 minutes might be. Walking's positive effects on you go down to the genetic level. It's been shown to positively affect the genes responsible for fat and carbohydrate metabolism in skeletal muscle, to reduce inflammatory gene expression in adipose tissue, and to lower oxidative and inflammatory gene expression pathways in older adults. All of these are very good things that improve your health, and maybe, just maybe, can even make you look prettier than you already are. Walking can also help lower your stress levels, especially if you plan your route to go through green spaces like parks or gardens if you live in the city. It's even better if you live somewhere out in the countryside and you can go for a walk in the woods. It helps lower your cortisol, a hormone your body produces in response to stress that's harmful in chronically high amounts. Plus, it can also boost your immune system. A 30-minute walk increases your body's killer T-cells and other markers of immune function. In postmenopausal women, the normally pretty bad effects on the immune system that menopause can bring is reduced, and it isn't as bad as it otherwise could be. In elderly people, walking helps improve balance and reduces falls. But here's an important caveat to that. Walking programs that have elderly people walk indoors or on treadmills as briskly as they can do not have this effect to the same degree that slower, more meandering walks on natural, uneven terrain like hiking trails or park paths do. So once again, the closer you get to nature while walking, the more powerful the effect is. Back to the study from the Neurology Journal we talked about at the outset. In another related comment, this time from Dr. Scott McGinnis, a neurologist from Brigham and Women's Hospital and an instructor in neurology at Harvard Medical School, said this, Engaging in a program of regular exercise of moderate intensity over six months or a year is associated with an increase in the volume of selected brain regions. Exercise in general is good, most especially if you know how to do these things correctly. It's extremely rewarding but intimidating at the same time if you're just starting out. Physical training requires a lot of personal investment. You need to develop the skill required to do every type of exercise properly in order to get the most benefit and minimize the risk of injury, which can set you back a lot. And most of all, you really have to be emotionally invested in the results you want to get from it. Otherwise, you'll struggle to maintain the discipline needed when motivation wavers during any down days you're going to have. Everybody goes through that. That and any pre-existing conditions like old injuries or low levels of physical fitness due to illness or age can add more barriers to entry. Not insurmountable, but it'll make things harder to start, not to mention harder to stick to. That's the reason we're talking about walking. Again, underappreciated, but worth taking seriously as an accessible means of starting or re-establishing a basic level of physical fitness, no matter what your background might be. What do I mean by taking this seriously? A couple of things. One, you gotta respect it by acknowledging that this is a form of physical activity that you need to do regularly and stick to in order to get the results. You can't just try it a few days for one or two weeks and say, ah, didn't work, it ain't worth it, back to taking the bus. Two, you gotta be willing to put the time in, even when you don't feel like it. This means being purposeful in setting a specific time of day to take longer walks and just getting to and from a place to buy or do something. Walking to and from the refrigerator for breakfast, lunch, and dinner don't count. Go outside. Pick her out. Change it up every now and then if you need to. 
Plan, execute, and repeat. Walking is one of the simplest things you can do to invest in your mind and your body. You don't need a gym membership or any equipment to do it. You just have to genuinely care enough about yourself to want to. And I think you should. People who walk are in good company. A good number of some of the smartest, most creative, and highly influential people from history all the way up to modern times have made a habit of walking as being a key component of their life and work. Here are a few examples of historical figures who walked from a really good article written by athlete, author, and fitness coach Mark Sisson. Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, empiricist, and pupil to Plato, conducted his lectures while walking the grounds of his school in Athens. His followers, who quite literally followed him as he walked, were even known as the peripatetics, Greek for meandering or walking about. William Wordsworth, the poet, walked nearly 175,000 miles throughout his life while maintaining a prolific writing career. As he saw it, the act of walking was indivisible from the act of writing poetry. Both were rhythmic, both employed meter. He needed to walk in order to write. Charles Dickens, the author and social commentator, also walked a lot. After writing from 9 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon, he would go for long walks, which on average would be about 20 to 30 miles. When Dickens couldn't sleep at night, which was often, he'd go through London streets until dawn. He walked so much that his friends worried, thinking that he may have had a mania for walking that bordered on pathology. Henry David Thoreau was a famous saunterer. In his essay titled Walking, he comments on the etymology of the word saunter, noting that it comes from the idle people who roved about the country, under the pretense of going a la santere, I just don't pronounce that wrong, or the holy land. For Thoreau, walking through nature was kind of a pilgrimage without a destination. His holy land was all around him. As long as he walked, he kept discovering new temples, new places to worship, so to speak. Ludwig van Beethoven, the famous composer, typically worked from sunup through mid-afternoon, taking several breaks to run out into the open and work while walking. One biographer described these short walks as a bee swarming out to collect honey. And then, after a large midday meal, Beethoven would take a longer, more vigorous promenade lasting the rest of the afternoon. These walks happened regardless of the weather, as he considered these important for his creativity. He would carry a pen and sheets of music paper in case inspiration struck, and it seems like it often did. History and famous people from it. That's all well and good, but if I had to pick just one person to be someone to point to as exhibit A of why you and I should take long walks as much as we can, I'll point to someone ordinary in a physical fitness sense, just like you and me, that you can look up on the internet right now. David Mitchell. David Mitchell is a British comedian, actor, and writer known for his dry and sarcastic wit. You'll find clips of his rants that tend to entertainingly go off the rails the angrier he gets about some of the most ordinary things, and yet he still manages to stay really articulate despite all the veins popping up in his forehead. To a lesser degree, he's also known for taking hour-long walks every day that have helped him with his bad back and helped him lose weight. Significantly despite admitting to having a bad diet. Here's what he wrote about that. I had a very bad back a couple of years ago, and lots of people advised different things. But the one thing everyone agreed on was walking. By walking for an hour every day, and still eating my horrific diet, I was able to get a bit thinner. I was slightly ashamed of being pleased about the weight loss, 
because the reason was my back, not vanity. Nevertheless, that vanity is in me, otherwise I wouldn't be pleased. You'll notice this if you compare his earlier appearances on television with his later ones. The difference is pretty impressive. If David Mitchell can do it, so can you. Anyway, it's time for this episode's featured track, something a bit different from Dallas-based instrumental rock band Polyphia, titled 40 Ounce. Here's the thing. Polyphia are primarily known as an instrumental rock band, but their influences are almost all across the board. And in 40 Ounce, there's this drastic shift in the way their music goes, incorporating elements of hip-hop and electronica, not just in instrumentation, but in how the song goes composition-wise. It's upbeat, it's bouncy, but it wouldn't be Polyphia without the ridiculously articulate and technically proficient guitar work. It's a real treat to listen to, so make sure you do just that. That's it for this episode of 750 Mills. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm to check out links to stuff we have talked about here. That includes the featured track, along with this episode's secret link where you can learn to enjoy something that's hundreds of years old. So don't be a square and check out the link. Please consider subscribing and listening to the 750ml podcast on podomatic.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts might be found. Just type in 750ML Podcast in the search box and tap on the follow or subscribe button, depending on what appears in there. Links to all of that will be in the show notes for this episode as well, which you can find on 750ML.fm. That's 750ML.fm. If you've been enjoying it so far, please consider leaving a star rating and a review. Your feedback helps improve the podcast and it definitely helps other people find it as well. And I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, folks, thanks for hanging out with me. And I'll leave you with a thought from Nobel Prize winning theoretical physicist Richard Feynman on being careful about the type of person you think you or someone else might be based on fancy pieces of paper that you kind of accrue throughout life. Here's what he said. Never confuse education with intelligence. You can have a PhD and still be an idiot. Hope you guys have a good day. Take care now.